Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today, I am here with Daniel from Looker. Daniel, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little bit of an overview of your background? Sure. Yeah, not, I would say, your typical path to a data analyst type role, but that's okay. I, oh boy. Uh, So I studied music and politics in college, obvious combination, obviously. And I really loved music because it was math. So that at least makes sense. And I love politics because it was like sort of my heart pursuit. It was the emotional thing. And after I graduated and was sort of bouncing around and trying to figure out what I really wanted to do, eventually I made my decision that I was going to do music. And so I went to grad school for music and got a master's in, well, it was going to be in electronic music and sound design, but it ended up being in multimedia engineering. But then because music is not a great career path, I was actually also working for a political organization at the time. And I got hired by them full time, making me the only one leaving my program with a music degree and a job. So that was great. And I went and worked for them. And because they were a small staff running an organization of about 8 million members electronically, the only way that you could see what was going on and that you could understand what your users were doing and what they wanted to do was through data. So I was told that I needed to learn SQL because that was the way I was going to get answers to my questions. And so I learned SQL, and I loved it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You can understand what's going on. You just write these weird words and send them to the database, and you get an answer back. Everyone should do this. Later, I realized that everyone was not going to do this, but I did fall in love with it. And uh, (laughs) then I eventually finished up there after about eight years and went to work at a media company building their data and analytics stack from the ground up. And did that just sort of at the right time to take full advantage of the sort of revolution that's happened in the data and analytics space in terms of the technology available. And I got hooked up with this small firm out of Santa Cruz because we had a shared investor or something. And he said, you should go check out, you know, my friend Lloyd is doing this thing. It just started. It's called Looker. Go check it out. Uh, So I got on the phone with them and was you know, bowled over by what Lloyd showed me. And so I bought Looker. We were customer number 22. And I loved it as a user and as a customer and used it for three and a half years. And then as I was trying to decide what I wanted to do next, Lloyd said, well, you're good at talking and writing and thinking about data, like evangelism, you should come do that for us. So that's what I did. So I came and I've been at Looker for almost four years now. My title is Chief Data Evangelist. I still don't quite know what that means, but I'm, I'm kind of a utility player. I do a little bit of everything. I'm not the best at any one thing, but I'm, I'm solid at a lot of things. And so I bounce around. And so I've been on the product marketing team and, and now I'm on the product team and have been for the last couple of years. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a wild ride. Awesome. Now, when you're getting uh, you know, your music and political science degrees, did you ever think you were going to be sucked into the world of data? I, I don't know that I knew that there was a world of data. Um, I mean, I no, definitely not. You know, I felt very grateful to get to work in politics because it's something I care a lot about. And the data was always just kind of an adjunct to that. It was a thing. It was about how I did my job rather than what my job actually was. So, you know, that was 
I mean, incredibly informative. My work there just absolutely informs everything that I do every day in terms of understanding how people interact with products, in terms of understanding scale, you know, and growth, understanding how data can inform product decisions, how it can mislead product decisions, understanding how tools get built, like all of that stuff. Because when you're running a giant volunteer political organization, that's about the lowest attachment user you can imagine, right? And so your product better be damn good at grabbing users and getting them in the door and getting them excited, or it's not going to work if you think of sort of a product broadly. It also made me a far better writer than I used to be because our main medium of communication with our members was email. And so, you know, you, you think about how to sort of communicate complex ideas very concisely because you've got about three short paragraphs before you lose their attention. And so how do you communicate very concisely and get them excited and get them to click on that link and do the next thing? So yeah, it certainly informs my work. And, you know, and actually because I ended up doing a music degree, but one that was really focused on sort of the technology of music, I, I learned a little bit of programming there. And, and that certainly informs my, my thinking as well. Yeah, you mentioned something kind of interesting I want to dig into there. Like you talk about data informing and misleading product decisions. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, I just think that not to sort of harp on the wording too much, but I think we've fallen into this trap of the idea of being data driven. And I always think of that office episode where Michael Scott drives into the lake because the GPS tells him to turn right. That's being data driven in my mind. And that is not what you want to do. You don't want to end up in the lake. So there's a difference between being data driven and data informed. And so it's not about putting aside all of the other things, the other tools that you have at your disposal, you know, your intuition and your qualitative research and, you know, your experience. Don't put any of those things aside. Just add data to that tool belt, right? And so if data is in conflict with all of those other things, interrogate that. Try to figure out, is that because the data is wrong and something went wrong with your test or your data is misleading? Or is that because your intuition is wrong? And, you know, I've had certainly had instances of both where, you know, the data smelled fishy. And the more I dug in, the more I realized, yes, the data was fishy. And other times where I was like, no, my intuition, I'm, I'm sure it's right. And then I really, I tested and tested and tested again and proved that my intuition was just flat out wrong. And the data showed me that. So I think, that being data informed is great. I think data drivenness can can lead us astray. I like that. I mean, I think some of it is just, you know, the words like some people pick on data driven, right? But I, I think that the story behind the words is the important thing, right? You yeah. don't want to be that guy that drives into a lake, even if it's a, a data lake. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a data swamp or a, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the other thing I, I wanted to dig into, you, you talked about joining Looker. So w- talk to me about what inspired you about Looker in the beginning and, you know, how you got involved. Sure. So my first interaction with Looker was I got on the phone with their sales team, which was Lloyd, who's the founder, who was the technical counterpart, and Keenan, who was the only business guy at the time. I think they had, you know, maybe six employees. And Lloyd tried to sort of explain what Looker was and... I didn't quite get it. And he said, you know, I'm just, I'm not good at explaining. Can I just show you? And I said, well, how are you going to show me? And he said, well, let me just connect Looker to your database and then you can ask me any question. And I said, (laughs) okay, this is going to be hilarious. I don't like vendors and I'm going to get to watch a vendor fall on his face in front of me. This should be wonderful. Um, So I was very much looking forward to that. So I said, sure, great. Yeah, let's let's, uh, connect to my database and then I'll ask you anything very skeptically. 
And so he connected and he said, okay, go ahead, ask me anything about your data. And I said, okay, how about, you know, show me this. And he hit a few keys and he answered it. And I said, huh, okay, well, that was an easy one. How about this? And I asked him another question and boop, boop, boop. And he answered that one. And I said, huh. And then he said, but have you thought about slicing the data this way? And then boop, boop, boop. And he showed me something that I had never seen before in my data. And he had been connected to it for 10 minutes. And I was like, what is this black magic that you have here? <laughs> like, what are you doing? And what I realized was that Looker was like, back when I had first learned SQL and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is so empowering. I can write any SQL query and get an answer. Everyone should want to do this. What I realized was that Looker was the thing because not everyone is going to learn SQL, but everybody can learn Looker and Looker provides that same power. So that ability to just ask any question and find an answer was just, it was amazing. It blew me away. You know, and then working with the, the folks here for three and a half years as a customer, I just was bowled over by their absolute commitment to my success as a customer. You know, Lloyd was constantly giving chat support. You know, you'd, you'd log on, you'd get stuck and you'd log into the little chat box in the, in the corner and you'd say, hey, you know, is anyone available to help me? And Lloyd would jump in and say, yeah, yeah, what, hey, Daniel, what's going on? You know, let me, let me help you. And that was not just my experience. Everyone that I've talked to both back then and even now is just blown away by Looker's commitment to their success. So I was, you know, both impressed with the technology and sort of the vision for where the technology should go and with the company behind it. So when I was trying to sort of figure out what was next for myself and Lloyd asked me to come work with them, I was, that was very exciting. Awesome. I mean, that's a great story. It's always interesting to hear how people got involved, you know, got sucked into the, you know, the companies that they're passionate about. Uh, yeah, to totally accidentally. I mean, literally, it was like, I think Lloyd's friend was an angel investor of Upworthy's where I worked. And he was the one who was like, oh, you're the new data guy. Nice to meet you. You know, are you, what tools are you using? And I was like, oh, well, I just, you know, we're going to use Redshift as our database. And I'm trying to figure out what to put on top of that. And he was like, oh, my friend Lloyd just started this thing in Santa Cruz. Here, let me, let me connect you guys. And you can, you know, take a sales call with him, basically. So that was, it was that accidental, that, that sort of serendipitous. That's, that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about how product managers use data, right? I mean, I, I feel like product managers, especially today, are, are flooded with all kinds of data coming in from a bunch of different sources, you know, usage data, feedback, NPS scores. How do you tell people to prioritize what data matters the most to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's a great question. I don't think there's a single answer. I don't think the answer is like, oh, always the usage data. <laughs> I think that the answer is going to depend on what you're doing and, you know, how you're trying, what problems you're trying to solve fundamentally, right? It's like the answer there is going to depend very much on, well, are you a, you know, B2B company that has a couple of big customers that you need to keep happy? Or are you a B2C company where, you know, you can't possibly be in sort of constant contact with, you know, a, a significant chunk of your users, you know, and I, so I think, you know, which of those tools you want to depend on and in what, what ratio is going to really depend on what you're trying to accomplish and, and also where you're at in your, you know, in your growth path. I think if you sort of think, if you start with the question that you're trying to answer and then figure out which of the pieces of data that I have can shed light on that question, that's a really good way to go about it. So, you know, and that's, that's something that I find actually is a useful 
uh, sort of thing to remember, both for analysts and for product managers, is like people always come to you with the solution that they want, but they don't actually know the full range of what's available. So they shouldn't be coming up with solutions. They should be explaining their problem to you, right? So if you're a product manager, they come and they say, I want this button to be blue. And you say, great, we'll go make the button blue. You're a bad product manager. (laughs) That's not what product managers are supposed to do. They're supposed to say, why do you want the button to be blue? What are you trying to accomplish by making the button blue? And the person says, oh, well, I just wanted to stand out more from the background. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, what if we made the button larger? What if we, right, like you start, running through solutions now that you actually understand their problem. And the same thing happens with analysts where someone comes and they say, hey, I need to see, you know, sales by salesperson by region for the last six months. Well, why? What, what are you trying to understand? Oh, well, I want to see if there's like a big difference in, you know, how salespeople ramp over uh, different regions. Oh, okay. Well, what if we only, you know, what if we narrowed that down and only looked at people who've recently been hired and, you know, let's not include Europe because we know that the data there is very different and the ramping process is very, okay, all right. You know, that's the process you actually want to be going through. And so I think when product managers are thinking about how to use data, they should be doing that same thing internally where they say, well, what am I trying to actually understand here? Am I trying to understand you know, where people are getting stuck in the onboarding path, then usage data might be a really good thing. You know, am I trying to understand whether people's, you know, impression of the product or or how easy it is to use has changed over time, then NPS might be a great, you know, resource there. Am I trying to, you know, understand what jobs people are trying to do with the product, then maybe, you know, quantitative data isn't the right thing at all. Maybe what I need to do is a bunch of user interviews. So I, I think, starting with that question rather than saying, this is the data that I have available and here's what I can make of it. I think that same sort of approach is, is a really valuable one. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. And, you know, and, and it's, it's important that you're that product manager too, that isn't just uh, you know, giving them the blue button without asking you know, why or, or when you wanted the button blue, which is another interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about metrics too, you know, thinking about this from a, a dashboard perspective, what metrics should matter the most to product people, you know, and how should they approach tracking them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Lloyd, our founder, talks a lot about vanity metrics versus operational metrics. And I think that concept is a really useful one. And what he means by that is vanity metrics are the metrics that you use to sort of compare companies or compare you know, students or compare products. There are things like, oh, what's your, you know, MAUs? What are your, what's your revenue? What's your, what is, what's your final grade on this test? You know, things like that, that tell you sort of how you're doing against your peers. And those are really useful. I don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, calling them vanity metrics. I don't mean to say like, oh, you're just vain if you focus on them. They're useful, but they're useful for understanding where you sit now. They're not useful for getting better or, or you know, for improving getting your grade on the test doesn't tell you what you got wrong. It just tells you how you did. And so what you want to do is you want to dig in to get at those operational metrics, the things that actually point out where you are not doing as well as you could be so that you can work on those things. You can get better at those things, right? And so that often means digging a level deeper than the vanity metrics or two levels deeper than the vanity metrics to really focus on, you know, the things that that are actually actionable that will will help you get better. And I think Good metrics, good operational metrics are ones where you look at them and you immediately know what you should do in response to that, right? The van- dashboards full of vanity metrics can actually be really disempowering for people because if I'm, you know, a worker at a company and the giant tile on the dashboard that's, that's on the, you know, on the screen every morning 
is revenue. And I am a product manager who doesn't really work on a, you know, on a revenue creating part of the product yet. Like that can be really disempowering because I look at that number and I go, oh, the number's going down and I don't know what to do about that. That's not something I've, I can understand how I can affect. So that can be a real problem, in fact. So when you think about what metrics you want to be tracking, they should be the ones where you say, if this does, if this metric goes up or if this metric goes down or if this metric changes by more than this, then I know what I need to do, right? It's very clear what I need to do. I sometimes talk about actual physical dashboards. You know, if you peek into the cockpit of a plane, you will see that there are just an unthinkable number of dials, gauges, switches, right? It's like, it is an enormous, overwhelming dashboard. And it is so overwhelming, in fact, that there's simply no way that you could expect a pilot to keep their eye on all of those things simultaneously. She, she simply can't do that. So what do they do? They add alerts and alarms so that it says, hey, you should look at this particular dial now, right? There's not an expectation that she's going to keep her eye on all of those things simultaneously. There's an expectation that if one of those metrics becomes problematic, her attention is going to be attracted to that particular dial because if she sees that the altimeter is, you know, going down, she knows what to do about that. If she sees that the, you know, speedometer is is showing overspeed, she knows what to do about that. And so those are the kind of metrics you want to have on your dashboard, the ones where if it does something funky, you immediately know what to do about it. Yeah. So one thing I want to dig in a little bit, you talked about vanity and operational metrics. Can you give us an example, you know, from your experience? Of- sure, absolutely. So um, yeah, let's, let's use an example of, let's just pick a company. So let's talk about, you know, Uber or Lyft for that matter. So, you know, a vanity metric might be rides taken. That's a total vanity metric, right? Or even more vanity, uh, cities served, right? Like, does not tell you what to do purely about like, how do we compare? Oh, Uber serves more cities than Lyft. Great, useful for comparing them, but not actually. You know, it's the kind of metric that's useful for investors, not for, for the people that work there. Uh, an operational metric at Uber or Lyft might be, you know, number of or percentage of rides where it takes more than five minutes for the driver to arrive. Or, you know, percentages of rides canceled. And then if, you know, on percentage canceled, then that's, operational only if you dig a level deeper because you want to understand, well, why were they canceled, right? And so the level deeper might be, well, they were canceled because the driver wasn't arriving quickly enough, or they were canceled because the driver wasn't moving on the map, or they were canceled because, you know, the user made a mistake in the product and didn't actually mean to confirm the ride. So you can start to dig a level deeper. You're not, that, that metric by itself, percent canceled is not operational, but, but underneath it are definitely some operational metrics. So you know, I think those are the kinds of operational metrics. To use, you know, another example, maybe we want, you know, imagine a Candy Crush, a game, right? So uh, again, oh, yeah. a, a vanity metric there might be, you know, DAUs or, you know, money spent uh, in the game or minutes spent in the game, whereas an a operational metric would be something like people making it past level X, right? Or, or people, you know, number of dropouts at level X, right? So how many people made it to level, you know, X and then no further, Right. And what you would see is if you graphed that, probably you would want to see a sort of smooth curve. But maybe you see that level seven is like harder than it should be. And so there's actually a spike there. Okay. Now that's operational. I can, I know what to do. I need to go and reconfigure level seven because a bunch of people who should be getting further in the game and sticking with it aren't making it past level seven. Thanks. I think those are great examples. So one of the things you mentioned was NPS too. What's your take on NPS? I think. Oh boy. <laughs> I think, so I think NPS is from the, 
consumer perspective, I think NPS is a great innovation because it's so simple and so easy to administer that your response rate is going to be higher than on basically any other survey question. So that's great from the perspective of actually providing, you know, signal. And I will actually say, I will plug Pendo here for you by saying that when we moved NPS from an email-based system to an in-product system using Pendo, we actually saw the response rate 4x. So, you know, actually putting it in the context where the person was already in our product made it so much more relevant to people and they were so much more likely to answer it. So that that is really great. And I think that's one of the really good things about a single question survey, which probably is going to be NPS, but it could be CSAT, it could be whatever. It could be, do you like us? But the idea of a single question survey that you sort of glean something from is great because your response rate is going to be higher than anything else. In terms of what to actually make of NPS, you know, the the sort of classic question is, well, is that NPS good or bad? Oh, 37. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's useful in that in that context because I like compared to what? Compared to whom? What is their sampling compared to the auto dealership or compared to Apple or compared to your cable company, right? Like, you know, there are benchmarks online, but I, I just, I don't take a lot from them. Where I do think NPS is really valuable is if you're constantly sending NPS to a small sample of users. And so you can track your NPS over time against itself. There, I think it's really useful because it gives you a sort of benchmark baseline that you can constantly be comparing yourself against? Are we getting better or are we getting worse? If we're getting worse, why are we getting worse? What changed about our product or about, you know, our user base or why is this going down? Why is this going up? So I think in that context, it can be a really powerful signal. But in the like, is this good or bad there? I think it's very misleading. It's a vanity metric rather than an operational metric. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think, you know, just looking at it as a number is very much a vanity metric. I mean, looking at, you know, the trend line of NPS is something that's actionable, right? Yep. So, you know, one of the other things that I found interesting is you're on the product growth team and you work there on, on building features for retaining users, right? Can you tell me about yep. that experience, what you learned and how you developed metrics around that too? Yeah, absolutely. So we call ourselves, or we we have called ourselves the growth team. It's somewhat of a misnomer because generally when people think of growth, they think of like acquisition, acquiring new users, activating them, and then retaining them. But at Looker as a B2B enterprise software company, we have several hundred people whose whole job it is, is to acquire new users for us. So we haven't focused very much on acquisition, hardly at all. We've really been focused on activating users and retaining them and really not customers, but users, right? So, you know, a customer signs a contract and they start using it and then they add 10 more users. How do we get those 10 new users who have just logged into the first, into the product for the first time? How do we get them to value very quickly and, and keep them coming back? So I think we called ourselves the growth team mainly because the tools that we're using in terms of sort of rapid iteration and, you know, very data informed decision making, that is very growthy in a sort of Silicon Valley idea, uh, or that idea of, of how you build products is very, is very Silicon Valley growth centric. But the idea of like growing our business was not actually what we were aiming to do. So in terms of, you know, getting some metrics that were useful there, what we realized is that for us at least, most of the leakage, most of the leakage from our funnel happened very quickly. It was not that users were using the product you know, for 
a week or two weeks or, or a few months and then deciding, ah, this doesn't really provide value. Our problem was really around activation. So it was in a, in a user's first or second experience with the product that they kind of decided this is for me or not. And so that's really where we focused. And so our, our key guiding metric was really on month two retention. So how many people came back in days 31 through 60? And what we realized was even that was like a lagging indicator because mostly the people who were going to drop out were gone by like week two. And so we, we sort of, our official metric remains, sort of our, our top line official metric remains month two retention. But we know pretty darn well that if you're, not coming back consistently in week two, you're probably gone and we need to figure out some way to get you back rather than uh, assuming that you will come back of your own volition and we have a few more you know, bites at the apple to get you to, to stick around. We really know that those, that as I've heard it referred to, that Fatui first time user experience is, is the whole ball game for us. So, uh, I mean, based on learning that, I assume you guys devoted a lot more resources into improving that, that first time user experience. Is that That's, yeah, I mean, that, that has really been where our focus is. And, you know, and I think Looker as a product presents some unique challenges. The sort of, the way I explain this is, like, if you think about Salesforce, which I feel like enough people have experience with, that it's a good, good sort of example. If you think about your Salesforce instance, if you've worked at more than one company that uses Salesforce or some other CRM, you probably know that, like, the bulk of the interface is the same, but there are little tweaks and customizations and different objects and things like that in every Salesforce instance, right? So, you know, if you think that like, oh, 80% of Salesforce sort of stays the same from company to company, but 20% is going to be customized. Looker is more like 50 or 60% of the interface stays the same from company to company and the other half is customized. And so that presents some real challenges because it means that we don't actually know what Looker looks like to our customers necessarily. And it means that we're really dependent on the the people at their company who own the Looker product and are implementing it to do a good job. And so what we kind of hypothesized is that we had two avenues by which we could influence that first-time user experience and we needed to sort of chase both of them. So one was around helping the product owners do a better job and, or sort of encouraging them, giving them best practices, really you know, working with them to, to make Looker as inviting, their particular Looker instance as inviting an experience as possible. And that was partially around product features, partially around you know, in-product guides and notifications, partially around person-to-person professional services and customer success training because you know, we often have relationships with those individuals because it is, is a much smaller group but their work has a much larger impact. And so we built things for them like the ability to customize their welcome email, right? So that rather than getting an email that says, hey, Eric, welcome to Looker, click here to log in, you've been invited, which is very like confusing and off-putting if you don't even know what Looker is, to instead have it say like, hey, Eric, you've been invited to Pendo's Data Hub, Here's the link to log in. But before you do that, check out this video that'll explain everything about it. And if you have questions, hit us up in this Slack channel. And, you know, our data dictionary lives here. Ready to log in? Here's the link again, right? That's a much better experience. And so giving those admins, those product owners, the tools to implement that, as well as using that as an opportunity to sort of encourage them to do best practices that we know are important, but they may never have thought about, things like, creating a Slack channel, having a data dictionary, right? We can kind of push them to do those things by putting those hints in that, you know, the template for the custom welcome email. 
you know, those are the kinds of things that we've built for those product owners. And then on the other hand, how do we target the individual users directly, right? Without having to rely on the product owners. So things like walkthroughs, this is how a dashboard works, or literally you've just landed in the instance. Even though we don't quite know what it looks like, we can make a guess based on what the most popular piece of content on your instance is that you have access to. Like, hey, here's the most popular dashboard on your instance. We have no idea what it is because we can't see the data that our users are looking at and we can't even see the sort of content that they've built. But you know, pretty good bet if it's the most popular piece of content at your whole company that you have access to, it's probably relevant to you. So we'll point that out to people. We know where that is in the UI and we can say, here, check out this dashboard. Like, you know, it's the most popular at your company. Check it out, favorite it. And that gets them at least to more value than a, a homepage. So those two avenues, one of, of sort of going directly at the product owners and, and trying to make them better because we know that that translates into a better experience for all of their other users. And then on the other hand, trying to figure out what can we build that will directly impact the, the individual users. Yeah, so this is all really interesting. Now I'm curious about measurement. Like what kind of results did you get from making some of these changes? Yeah, I mean, we've seen sort of slow and steady progress on the month to retention front. It's kind of, we, We've done so many things and sort of tried so many things. It's some of which are very measurable and some of which are not at all easily measurable. Things like running a, you know, a dashboard walkthrough guide or a, a greeting, a lightbox greeting, things like that are, it's very easy to measure because we've, you know, randomized uh, and have a control group so we can see did this have a direct impact on month two retention. But things like, oh, we've constantly been working with our professional services and customer success teams to stress to them the importance of, you know, having the people that they work with at these customers build training modules, build videos, build, you know, have Slack channels, things like that. A lot harder to measure that. We haven't randomized our professional services team and, and only told some of them how to be better at their jobs. We thought that would be weird. So, uh, so you know, the, the top line metric has sort of slowly and steadily been creeping up, which is great. And then we can point specifically to some particular interventions that are easily measurable and say, you know, we know the lift that we got out of this because we ran a, a good randomized control trial. And, and so we can say, you know, this had a direct impact. So uh, is there one you can point to that had just a profound impact, maybe something that had a huge impact or maybe one that had a good impact that you were totally shocked by or maybe both? We, oh boy, those were a lot of things. Um, we um, were really surprised at how good the completion rates on our dashboard and sort of exploration walkthroughs were. They were like 20 and 25%, which kind of shocked us that people stuck with them. I feel like my default behavior is, ah, get out of here. I don't know, you know, I mean, maybe that's just me because I'm a grumpy old man, but that's definitely my default behavior. And so the fact that 25% of people were making it to the end of this four or five step walkthrough was really amazing. And, you know, we've seen really good uptake or upticks in their, their months to retention there. Another one that, that we know had a real good impact was an onboarding email sequence. So, you know, in the past, we didn't really have anything that you would get when you first logged in to look or, you know, that was it. You logged in and that was that. And if your, your admin had something, that was great. But if they didn't, then you were on your own. And so we started with a one, you know, with a single email that you got like the day after you logged in. And then we, we expanded that into a three email series. And now it's a six email series that spaced over the course of the first month after you first logged in. And we saw a real impact in that in terms of, you know, if nothing else, it keeps it top of mind. 
for people over the course of that month. And so we saw, you know, great impact there. You know, I, I think we started from a baseline of doing very, very little to help these people. And so I'm not saying, I'm not sure I was shocked that any of these interventions helped because none of them is rocket science. It was just coming at it and, and actually putting some, you know, attention on it and saying, no, this matters. This is a thing. Looker is not a product that you sell once to the customer and then, you know, you have a, re- a renewal a year later. Customer success really is about an ongoing relationship and also recognizing that there are constantly new users who are coming in because they're new to the company or because they, you know, the company's expanded their usage. And so it's not a one and done, but you need to sort of constantly be thinking about how do we onboard new users all the time. And so I think once we started thinking about that, we found that there was a fair amount of low hanging fruit that we could grab. Thanks. That was, that was good. You know, you also wrote a blog post once about the data product manager. Can you explain what that is? What is a data product manager and how they help the product and when it's necessary to hire them? Sure. So I'm super passionate. This is like my latest little crusade. So basically the idea of a data product manager is that data is more and more being built as a product. And what I mean by that is that if you talk to analysts, their sort of comfort zone for most of them, the way that they've worked is as a service department. Uh, certainly true for me, where someone would come to you with a request. I need the you know sales by region for the last six months. And you'd go and you'd get it for them and you'd give it back to them. And they'd say, oh, sorry, I actually need sales by country for the last eight months. And so you'd grumble and go and pull that and bring that back and give it to them. And then they'd say, I'm not sure I really understand this. And you'd explain it to them because you were right there and you were providing a service. But more and more, as we move to a world of self-service and we move to a world where there are far more people using data in their daily jobs than the analysts could ever serve, we're actually building products for those people. And there is an art to building products, as you well know. And if you don't bring a different mindset to how to build good products, but instead try to just use your service mindset, you're not going to build a very good product. It's not going to be very usable, right? You are going to build something that is confusing and hard to use and not actually appropriate for your audience because you didn't take the time to understand your audience and you're going to hand it over and they're going to thank you and never use it. They're going to put it in a corner and never use it, right? I I talk about, you know, back when I was in grade school, high school, and you'd get paired up with somebody in your English class to like give feedback, to give edits on their paper and they'd give edits on yours. And if their paper was good, you'd have lots to say because you were like, oh, well, this, you know, this is great but I think you could tighten up this paragraph and have you thought about moving this here and that and there? And if it was bad, what would you say? You'd say, this is, this is great. Cause like, you're just like, look, I don't know where to start and I can't rewrite your paper for you. So this, yeah, this is great. And I have definitely like built stuff for people, data, you know, dictionaries, uh, dashboards, reports where their response is, this is great. And I, like an idiot, didn't realize that what they were saying was, I don't even know what to tell you, man. This is this is totally useless. I'm just going to say thank you and walk away, right? And so I think the solution there is the same solution that engineers figured out when they realized the stuff that they were building was very useful to them and totally confusing to everyone else, which is hire some product managers and hire some UX designers and some UX researchers and have them do their thing, right? Which is, Go talk to users, go understand people's actual problems that they're trying to solve. 
you know, figure out whether a, a particular interface is going to make sense to a particular persona or if it's just going to, you know, baffle them. And I think data people need to do that same thing. If we're going to be building products for people that we expect them to use on their own without having to come to us for service, we need to actually do all of that work. We need those other skill sets in the mix. Otherwise, what we're going to do is we're going to build products that make sense to us and are useful for us as data people and are totally useless to everybody else. And they're going to say, this is great. Thanks. And so talk to me too about what product managers, well, what mistakes they make with data and how they fix those mistakes, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think product data is hard. Uh, you like, I, I haven't solved it yet. Uh, I'll let you know when I do. You know, product data is hard because products are constantly changing and what you track is constantly changing. And I just feel like it's really easy with product data because there's so much of it and it can be so opaque it's really easy to misinterpret things and think that you understand what's what you're seeing and what your your analysis says when in fact you're like completely off base. You know, and I think this is fundamentally like a problem of the internet of computers where things can happen at such a large scale that like if what you see in the data doesn't match your own experience, you'd go, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm not representative and clearly this is happening out in the world and, and you know, I'm getting data about it. So this is in fact what's happening when in fact you're just misinterpreting the data. When you're talking about like physical, you know, smaller products and the data quote unquote about them, like if you run a restaurant and your receipts don't match what you observe in the dining room, like if, you're, if your receipts are really low and you see that the dining room is packed, you know something is wrong with your data, right? You don't need like a data analyst to tell you that you know that your numbers don't match what you're seeing and hearing and smelling with your own you know, senses. But if you're running 500 restaurants, you can't possibly know what's going on in all of them except by looking at the data. And so that means that you have to be really careful about making sure that you really do understand exactly what the data is saying and how it's being collected and where it could go wrong. Because if you don't understand those things, you know, some of the time it's gonna, you're going to interpret it correctly and everything's going to be hunky-dory. And some of the time you're going to interpret it wrong and that's really scary because you won't even know it, right? You know, I, I, technology tends to fail noisily. If your website goes down, somebody's going to tell you pretty quickly. People are going to come yelling and screaming, your website's down, fix it, fix it, fix it. But if your data fails, it tends to fail silently, right? You think you're looking at the data and you know what it means and you make a bunch of decisions based on that and you were wrong. The data was wrong. It was misleading you. And you may never find that out. You may find it out six months later, but that silent failure is really the scary one because, you know, if you, that can lead you astray pretty quickly. So I think for product managers, it's really important that they are talking to their engineering teams, to their design teams about you know, not just like, uh, it's easy to tell engineers, I don't know, I don't know what we're going to need to know. So just track everything. What happens then is you end up with a giant pile of junk and you can't make any, you can't make heads or tails of it. You need to think ahead of time. What do we want to track? What do we need to know about how people are using our product? And then work with your engineers to make sure that what they're instrumenting is actually that, right? Because you might think, oh, they instrumented, you know, sending this email after you click the button. And they're like, oh, no, I just instrumented clicking the button. And so you're like, well, I show here that we sent a lot of these emails. And they're like, no, technically, this just shows that people click the button a lot. And maybe the email sending failed, right? And it's really important, the distinction there, which one are you tracking? So it's really important that your engineers 
understand what you're trying to understand because if they don't, they'll, they'll track the wrong things and you'll misinterpret it and, and send you down a bad path. But, you know, digging into that a little bit, wouldn't it be better if you did have everything and you could just point to the data and in essence, ask your system the questions you want to know? I mean, magic, to magic is, magic is uh, enticing, but it rarely <laughs> proves to be true. Um, in my experience, no. Like, I think there is, to get technical for a second, I think engineers and product people tend to collect a ton of semi-structured data, by which I mean they like they don't try to figure out what shape the data should be beforehand because they, they take that perspective of, well, let's just collect everything. And the way to collect everything is by just, you know, collecting every event we can and every possible attribute about that event. And we'll make sense of it later to, to use the sort of data jargon. We'll, we'll do schema on read. And I just never see it work. Like inevitably what you end up with is a pile of hay and you're hunting around hoping there's a needle in there when it would have made a lot more sense to collect just the needles in the, like that's more work for sure. And sometimes you will not collect things that you should have, but you can always go back and fix that going forward. But if you just collect so much hay that you have no, and you have no idea if there's any needles in there, you can waste so much time hunting around in there that it's just not very useful. And, you know, and I think you, what you end up with is things like something that I discovered a few months ago in Looker's data, where we track refer, which makes sense, right? We want to know what page people were on before this, this current page that loaded. But because there was no structure around how we tracked it, we actually had three different spellings of the word refer in our data. So can you clean that up after the fact? Absolutely, you can. Is it easy? Nope. Are you going to waste a ton of time cleaning that kind of stuff up? Yep. So I would rather have had some structure and said, like, we are going to track refer. We are going to have a field called refer. You don't have to know how to spell refer. Just stick it in the refer field ahead of time rather than having people sort of, I don't know, track everything and we'll make sense of it later. It's a, it, to use yeah, another, yeah. I was just going to say to use another jargony term, like I often help orient Looker's new employees and I explain what a data lake is. And a data lake, in my telling, is IT's way of making you go away because you show up with some data and you say, hey, I've got some data. I don't quite know what to do with it. I don't know if it's going to be useful later, but I need to store it somewhere just in case it is. And IT says, well, just throw it in the data lake. And you say, really? Is that a, I could just throw it in there? And they say, yeah, 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 just throw, no worries. Just throw it right in the data lake and <laughs> it'll be there if you need it. And what they're really saying is, look, I've got experience and I know that 90 or 95% of the time you're never going to come back looking for this thing. So I'm not going to spend any time trying to, you know, store it nicely or make sense of it because most of the time you don't need the thing. Yeah, I, I totally get that. It feels like the lake that Michael drove into in the office, right? Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I would love to dig into this more, and I, but I want to be cognizant of your time too. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about ethical responsibility too. So maybe we can we can push off the discussion of, how to capture everything and make it useful to a, a later date. But that sounds good. Let, let's talk about, you know, this whole Apple card thing, right? And uh, do product leaders, data-driven or data-informed product leaders, do they have a, an ethical responsibility about how data is used and presented and then the algorithms based on that data? You're darn right they do. Yeah. I, I don't know. If, did you read David's wife's piece. Yes, uh, I did. I thought it was extraordinary. I thought she was so clear and so good in sort of outlining what was going on there. I was, I was blown away by it. Um, I really encourage everyone 
to check it out if you have not. Or I don't know, Eric, if you'll put like a link to this story uh, in the in I the think show we can notes. do that. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because I, I really do encourage people to check it out. But the the basic contours here are, you know, famous programmer guy who invented Ruby and his wife both apply for an Apple card, and they both have very good credit. She has better credit. They both, you know, have plenty of money, have had long credit histories, and he gets a credit limit that's far far higher than hers. And when they ask, you know, why did this happen? The answer is, I don't know, it happened in the black box in the algorithm and we can't really say anything. And they push and they push and they push and because they are, you know, well off and famous and have a, a megaphone, Apple and Goldman Sachs who run the, the Apple card relent and fix it for them. But, you know, that doesn't fix the problem for everybody else. It just fixes it for them. And they've been great and very clear that that is not a solution. Like, you know, as if the only people who can find, can get things fixed are, are the rich and the famous, that's not a good place to be. And yeah, I, I think that absolutely, you know, product managers, data people have a, have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility here. I think I, one of my real concerns, fears, and this is not, you know, novel thought at all. There's a ton of good literature on this. You know, Kathy O'Neill is one who I absolutely recommend. She wrote Weapons of Math Destruction. But as we move towards a society where more and more decisions are being made by the almighty algorithm, and those algorithms are often, you know, opaque. They're often controlled by private corporations, and there's just no way to ask questions of them. And frankly, and the people who are building them often don't even understand quite what's going on inside the black box. I think that's a really concerning place to be. And I think, you know, we need structures and guidelines and laws, maybe even, about, you know, how these really consequential decisions can be made and what right of sort of appeal you have. And fundamentally, we need to be able to interrogate those algorithms that are making more and more decisions about why they made the decision they did and, you know, what changes that could have been made. And also, you know, because algorithms are designed by people and have the same biases that their creators do, we need to understand whether these are, you know, these these algorithms that are baked into a lot of the products we use today are, are sort of systematically biased because, Either the data that they're being fed is systematically biased or the people that are building them, you know, whether they mean to or not, are, are biased. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And I do invite people to, to read the, the post uh, and all of the thread around it. There, there's definitely a lot of opinions and information and uh, it got, uh, got people's attention. That's, yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, we need more attention drawn to these questions. They're really, really important. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting too, and you you can take this and apply it to privacy too. I mean, I I know I had a, a similar issue that I never made a big deal of, but it was like we can't tell you why this happened, right? Yeah, totally. No, it's, <laughs> it's private information. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's my information, but we still can't tell you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, okay. and, and yeah, this isn't. It's, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's not like this is a brand new problem, right? Credit score is like the classic example here, where it's like you aren't even allowed to know your credit score except. Well, no, you're not allowed to know your credit score, except if you pay for it. You can see your credit report for free, thanks to a law that said that you have to be able to access your credit report yearly from each of the major credit bureaus. But you know, you don't you don't get to peer into that algorithm, and that algorithm is extraordinarily important for your life. Like, yeah, it, and it's only recently we have that transparency into the report itself. Really, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I think this is really critical stuff that we're going to have to tackle as a society, and. I don't think the mechanisms we have in place right now are sufficient, but I also don't think that the way that our government currently functions or dysfunctions is up to the task of, you know, the pace of innovation. So I think we're going to need to figure something out. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, I, I know we're wrapping up today. So why don't we finish with two quick questions about you? Um, sure. Tell me about your favorite product. I love, love, love Google Photos. I think it's an extraordinary product. It's, it's basically magic and it keeps getting better. But like, if you haven't loaded photos into Google Photos and searched for a keyword, it's amazing. Like they're using, like I am generally a pretty big skeptic of AI, but they have done a really good job of training their AI with a whole bunch of hand-tagged images, I'm sure. You can go in there and you can search Ferris wheel or beach or car, things that you have not tagged, things that you have never you know, talked about, and it'll just bring up a bunch of your pictures of those things. It's magic. It's really a great product. Yeah, I know. I like it myself. I mean, it, I use it to find old pictures. Like, I want a picture. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I need a picture of, wait, I don't, I like, I, I searched recipe the other day because I was like, oh, there's a recipe in a book that I sent to my sister and I need to find it. I searched recipe and it found it. And I was just like, how do you even, what? Oh, it's amazing. I wish Google Docs worked that way. Yeah. <laughs> they, should, they should share some of the right. teammates, some of that magic. Yes, yes. So one final question today, and then we're going to have to continue this conversation some other time because I have so much more I want to talk to you about. But one final question today, uh, three words to describe yourself. Oh, Lord. Oh, geez. I, you'd think that I would have seen this one coming. Um, I think curious, for sure. Loud. I think is probably something all of my coworkers would agree with. And skeptical. Let's go with that. Curious, skeptical, and, and loud. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. It's great talking to you, Eric. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>